Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Monday night, an 82-year-old BC man proves that it's never too late to set a world record. Find out how he used a skill he learned back in high school to earn a place in the Guinness Book. With inflation and other factors driving shoplifting rates up, we look into the long and often complicated history of that crime, and we learn how much of an impact it's having on grocery stores in particular. All consumers wind up footing that bill. And find out about a new crop of apps that help shoppers track down great deals on food about to hit its sell-by date and help curb food waste at the same time. But first, Ontario is expanding the private delivery of public health care by funding clinics to perform more elective surgeries to try to ease wait times and take pressure off the health care system in general. Supporters call it a step in the right direction. Critics call it the first step down a very slippery slope. You may have seen this today. This was talked about a lot over the weekend as well. Doug Ford, the Premier today, announced that Ontario is expanding the private delivery of public health care by funding clinics to perform more stuff such as cataract surgeries, MRI and CT scans, hip and knee replacements, and other procedures like that to try to ease pressures on wait, wait times specifically, but on the hospital system overall. Uh, they announced today that the first phase would be focused on addressing a huge backlog of cataract, cataract surgeries um, with an additional 14,000 procedures in places such as Windsor, Kitchener-Waterloo, and Ottawa. Uh, they're providing $18 million to existing private clinics to increase hours of MRI and CT scans and boost the number of surgeries with the goal of trying to get it back to those pre-pandemic levels by March. That's a pretty quick timeline. Here's the province's health minister, Sylvia Jones. We need to be bold innovative and creative. We need to build on the spirit of collaboration on display across the healthcare sector. We need to have the courage to look to other provinces and countries and borrow the best of what the world is already doing. And they are, because by expanding the number of private clinics delivering publicly funded treatment, they are following BC's lead, Quebec. Other provinces do the same too. They tried something along these lines. Um, wait times, of course, according to one report at least, were the longest ever recorded in Canada in 2020, 2022 at 27.4 weeks. So in making the announcement today, Premier Ford spoke about the endless debate about who should deliver health care and why we should stop having it. The way I can describe it, you know, you have a dam, you have a log jam. Are you going to just keep pouring the water uh, up against the logs? Or are you going to reroute some of the water and take the pressure off, off the dam? Uh, you see what happens when the dam has too much water, it breaks. Doug Ford with an analogy there. Of course, the difference here is, is your water coming for free from the tap or are you getting it, uh, buying it in a bottle, right? That's got to, to extend his analogy badly. <laughs> Apologies for that. Still today... On that note, five healthcare unions called on the province to scrap the plan. They say it'll siphon provincial funding from public hospital care and hand it to private for-profit surgical clinics. Well, we're, with more on this, I'm joining now by Ontario Medical Association President Dr. Rose Zacharias. Uh, she's also a hospital-based ER physician in Orillia, Ontario. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I guess we can all agree that wait times are a problem. I mean, what, what have you been seeing just where you are over the past while? 
Absolutely. Wait times have been an issue since prior to the COVID pandemic and then ushered in, you know, a three-year COVID pandemic where we built up surgeries and now we have a backlog of surgical services and our wait times issue has not been solved. So people are waiting too long and they're getting sicker while they wait and we need to do better for our patients. Tell me a bit about your reaction to this plan then, because objectively what it's trying to do, at least what the premier says it's trying to do, is take some pressure off the system. He compared it to a log jam. You don't keep pouring water up against the logs. Will this help clear this log jam at all? So these community uh, surgical and diagnostic centers would help clear the logjam. We have at the Ontario Medical Association have been recommending for some time integrated ambulatory clinics, a series of standalone surgical centers where we could offload the hospital operating rooms, leave those spaces for the more acute emergency operations and bring out the elective procedures and surgeries, the cataracts, surgeries, uh, hip and knee replacements, some of the diagnostic imaging to bring those out of the hospital, help alleviate the strain there. And then those uh, surgeries are not at risk to being cancelled or postponed like they are when there's an emergency that shows up that hospitals are required to deal with. So we do think that uh, a series of integrated, and that's key, integrated in the hospital system, publicly funded, of course, would help deal with our wait times issue and catch up on the surgical backlog that we're dealing with now as a result of the pandemic. Just for the nuts and bolts of it, if I understand correctly, this is really to try to make sure that these surgeries get done, because what's happening now is there's such a huge backlog that if anything more uh, urgent happens, they get pushed back and they continue to get pushed back and the wait list just gets longer. Yes. So dedicated surgical centers would be set up in such a way that this is what they would do. They would have scheduled cataract and hernia surgeries, scheduled hip and knee replacement surgeries, uh, diagnostic imaging and endoscopy procedures would be scheduled. And we know that when focused surgical centers are set up specifically designed for these uh, surgeries and procedures, they can do them faster and service upwards of 20 to 30% more patients. In Ontario, this is something new and different than what we've been doing. But these models of care exist across Canada, British Columbia being an example of a province that has such a model, and uh, as well as Alberta and Saskatchewan. And so the announcement today in Ontario shows that we are adopting a model that has been studied and is effective, can deliver safe and good quality patient care. And to do so, in such a way that people are no longer waiting way too long to get into the operating room. What are some of the concerns? I mean, I've been reading about the concerns. Obviously, the hospital unions are out talking about the fact that this may siphon off talent or much needed doctors and nurses from the hospital from hospital settings. Uh, there's obviously the idea that it's delivered privately. What do you make of the concerns and those who are voicing them today? 
So Ontario's doctors have been very clear about our concerns. We know there are serious doctor and nursing shortages in Ontario and across Canada. And uh, we need this model of surgical care to implement a human health resource strategy. And so we want to work with government to come to the table in the implementation in order to have a serious look at uh, the doctors and nurses that are working in the system. I think integration with the current hospital system is key there, as well as addressing physician burnout and and nurses that have left their profession because they are simply burned out. This is a reality, of course, and we have solutions that we are recommending around the burnout issue. So we need to be very mindful of our human health resource crisis inside the healthcare system, and we need to preserve publicly funded healthcare in compliance with the Canada Health Act, that no one pays out of pocket, jumps the queue, gets in line first for a surgery because they can pay for it. Ontario's doctors are very clear about equal access for all of our patients. And, and I actually have a particular personal pride in that. 20 years working in the emergency department, I have seen those department doors open time and time again to anyone and everyone and know that our system is such that no matter who walks in the door, they get the care they need. And it is OHIP covered in our province and it's it's publicly funded uh, across Canada. Are there any concerns that if it's delivered privately, it will be more expensive and that takes money out of the system as a whole? Publicly funded is a priority. Currently inside of our publicly funded infrastructure where people get all of their care through a single payer, we have private delivery. Doctors mm-hmm. are community uh, small business owners and uh, pay for their overhead and staff. And so this announcement today doesn't change any of that. that. That is actually a system that we've been working in. And so we are committed to seeing the publicly funded priority through. We need to strike an implementation committee now so that all external stakeholders, so Ontario's doctors included here in our province, to see exactly how this model of care would be implemented. Tell me a bit bit about what you're going to be looking out for now. Obviously, you've had some other recommendations you'd like to see put in place to try to ease this crisis we're seeing in the country's emergency rooms. Uh, What else would you like to see done other than this? So uh, a series of surgical centers committed to catching up on the backlog is a really important idea. Ontario's doctors have always been for a publicly funded model. So that needs to remain at the center of this healthcare delivery model. Integration with the hospital system is key in order to protect any siphoning uh, of uh, human health resources, those doctors and nurses that we're already too short of to be leaving one system and then entering into another. And, And that's also going to help to preserve and ensure the good quality of care that's being delivered uh, and the safety of patients. Um, every patient is assessed individually and based on their you know, associated medical conditions or the state of their health uh, at the time, there needs to be uh, a system in place that they are cared for if their elective surgery would somehow develop complications. Although these models have been implemented and, uh, and overall boast a decreased complication rate and improved patient experience and improved provider experience, which is great. And all the while, 
able to see more patients to the tune of 25% more when you have these surgical centers that are focused and committed uh, and designed to, to do these elective procedures. What do you say? I mean, again, when I was reading some of the critiques of it today, it talked about siphoning off money and staff from the public health system. And then on the other side, those who support it say, listen, there needs to be more flexibility in the system right now. It's clearly not working the way we want it to work. We need to come up with some different ideas. Uh, Where does the OMA stand on that? Because I'm sure you hear both sides of this argument all the time. So it's time to be bold and innovative and bring in a new and different model of care, specifically around these elective procedures, people waiting for their hip and knee replacements, people waiting for those elective surgeries. I'm in the emergency department and I see people coming in with uh, chronic pain issues now, with caregiver burden, stress, with an overlay of mental health, depression and anxiety. Our physical health affects our mental health and our quality of life. And so we are at risk of um, not caring for patients um, well going forward unless we do something different. So this is something different. It's not brand new in the country. It's being done elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But in Ontario, it is a a welcome model of care that uh, when integrated with a hospital and publicly funded can address a serious issue. What should we be looking out for now? It's sort of where I started, but, you know, in the next months, how are we going to see this unfold in Ontario? When can we expect to be able to get that kind of surgery in that kind of a setting? Well, I mean, I hope that we are hearing from our neighbors and friends and family that they have been on a wait list for a while and now they got the call. Uh, on a systems level, we're going to see some alleviation of strain inside the hospitals. And it's a ripple effect in a, in a good way uh, as we care for our patients who are in, a, in, in need of, uh, of such surgeries and, um, and then getting them. Um, there'll be less visits to the emergency department in a crisis situation to deal with pain or complications um, of immobility. And so this is what we should be starting to see. And, it, and it's a positive thing. And of course, you're seeing this up close. I mean, you see this every day, right? Absolutely. I I mean, for example, I know of a patient who happens to be a nurse. She's given 35 years as a pediatrics nurse inside the healthcare system. She was diagnosed with breast cancer prior to uh, the pandemic. She had her emergency surgery, but she's require and she's requiring an elective revision of that surgery. And she has been told because it's not an emergency, um, it's it, it can't be accommodated right now. And so she is waiting. She's waiting patiently. But we can do better for her. We should be doing better for her. We should be doing better for everyone like her. And um, and so this is why we need to do something different. Because there's hundreds and thousands of surgeries that have been backlogged. But every single one of those is a person who's a family member, a parent, um, a daughter or son. And uh, that have responsibilities, right? And so um, we need we need to do right by our patients. Well, Dr. Rose Zacharias, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Absolutely, you're welcome. I don't remember much about high school gym class. I do remember that I, at some point, learned how to do a headstand, but could probably no longer do one if my life depended on it. That's not the case for my next guest. He, in fact, still practices a skill he picked up more than 65 years ago from a high school phys ed teacher in Leamington, Ontario. 
And now it's earned him a place in the Guinness World Book of Records. This past August, at the age of 82 years and 43 days, Bruce Ives became the oldest man to do a headstand. Here he is, getting set to accomplish that feat on a windy day on Haida Gwaii in BC. Hello, my name is Harold Bruce Ives. I'm 82 years and 43 days old. I'm attempting the record for oldest person to perform a headstand male. That is uh, Bruce Ives just before he did successfully do that headstand. Now, that would seem to be the crux of the tale, but we knew there must be more to the story than that. So joining us now from beautiful Haida Gwaii is Bruce Ives. Thanks for your time tonight. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) Wow, it was windy in that video. I mean, it it looked like the the sort of the Mother Nature conspired against you a bit (laughs) on the day you picked. I, I think oh. I could have lasted quite a bit longer, but the, the gusts were quite powerful, and and uh, actually I've done it longer at home uh, on my own, my own lawn. But uh, yeah, it was windy that day. Yeah, and you had quite the crowd there too, because the Guinness World Book demands that you have a whole set of witnesses, right? Yeah, that's right. I had three RCMP, uh, a yoga instructor, a principal of the high school, my uh, a couple of granddaughters, and my wife. Not too much pressure? You didn't feel too... too uh... Just for my wife. <laughs> there you go. So tell me, this is a great story because this is something you learned how to do many, many, many years ago and then sort of gave it up for a long time and picked it up again. Tell us a bit about how that happened. Okay, well, I'm, I, was, I was from Leamington, Ontario. That's where I went to high school. And I, think, I can't remember if it was either grade 9 or grade 10. The phys ed instructor had us all on, on mats stand on our heads as long as we could. I, I guess I learned to control your muscles and balance and all things. And uh, that's how, where I learned how to do it. So I didn't do it again until, oh, I guess my grandchildren were about, about 10 or so, something like that, around there. And I thought it would be a good idea to get involved with them, with their active kids, out in my front yard on the nice soft grass and get them to stand on their heads. And it sort of went from there to... Doing it on my birthday, June 25th, every year. That's right. You do it every year on your birthday. Has it gotten, I mean, I watched you do that one. It didn't look like you had any any real, you know, a bit of a, it took a few seconds to do it, but it didn't look like you had any problem holding that headstand. <laughs> no, once you're up, it's fairly easy. Well, for, for me, it's fairly easy to, to balance. I am fairly short. I am about 5'5 five, five now, 5'5 five, five and a half, something like that. So... I've noticed that people who are taller than me have more difficulty. Yeah, especially in a wind like that, I would imagine you probably would have uh, swayed right over at one point. How did you know, how did you figure out that there was a record out there to be set and that you would be able to set it? That, I didn't know, even know about the record thing until uh, my, uh, uh, my granddaughter told, told me about it. Um, Isabel Romas. She found out about that that there was a, a record to do. I had no idea, <laughs> so she approached me to do that with all the the um, people watching, and she's the one who sent off the paperwork to uh, get it recorded. And, and then, and then, what, how long did that take? When when did you find out? I think it took about six to eight weeks, quite a while. Yeah, I just found out. I had let's see, it's this January. I would say early December. Sometime around there that I, I finally heard that I, there was a record. 
and that you had it. Yeah, that must be uh, that must be pretty exhilarating. It is. <laughs> <laughs> what have you made? What is every? What is your granddaughter made of all the attention that this has generated? Oh, she loves it. <laughs> she she sort of watches from afar. She doesn't have to. She doesn't have to get involved in it. <laughs> I read somewhere that she can't do a headstand. That's right. She just told me that actually quite recently. Now her sister, her two sisters do. I can't remember if her brother does or not. I'm not sure about that. So, um, you know, June isn't that far off again. Are you going to be? Um, are you limbering up for another birthday headstand this year? That's another. That'd be it. Every time you do one, it would be a new record, right? <laughs> That's true. Um, I sort of. I'm thinking about it, but I'm. I just like I'm 82. Things can happen fairly quickly when you're 82, so I'm not going to promise. But I okay. probably will see if I can do it in a few days before that. Has it has it gotten any more difficult over time? I mean, it's it's um, how how do you how do you do you try to stay limber and try to stay active? I, I would imagine you do on Haida Gwaii. It's a great place to be outdoors. I'm fairly active. I I, I get my own wood. Well, with, this is the first year I've had help from my son to get my firewood, but uh, I'm active doing that. I'm, I do a lot of work, uh, work out in the yard, so I'm fairly active. I, I say for a, quite different than living in a city, you have to be fairly active if you're living in an isolated area like this. Yeah, so and, and lot, I think. Yeah. yeah. What about um, just advice for other folks out there who think about the things they once were able to do that maybe they haven't done in a long time. I mean, not necessarily a headstand, but there are lots of things that we were once good at that we sort of let slide as we age. And I was thinking about watching you do that headstand, thinking, wow, that takes a lot of guts. But at one point, you had to do it for the first time again, right? Yeah. Uh, that involved my, my... I wanted to be working with my, my grandchildren. I wanted mm-hmm. to be part of their, you know, their lives. So I think that's why I started back into it, to, to get involved with them. So they wouldn't just see me as, you know, the old guy who sits in the window. <laughs> <laughs> what do they think of you now? They think of you as the guy who does the headstands. It's pretty neat. <laughs> and as I said, the one grand granddaughter cannot do it. <laughs> <laughs> she was too busy trying to figure out how to how to make this how to sort of make you get you a Guinness World Record. To uh, she was using her head in other ways. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she did a pretty good job of that one. No doubt. Yeah. And any advice? I, was, I guess that's where I was I, in my long-winded question. I wanted to ask you about any advice to other, you know, lots of people have things they used to be able to do. I guess, what would you tell them about trying out something that you haven't done in a long time to see if you can do it again? Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I think about, I wanted to be involved with, the, with the, my grand, grandchildren. I think that's what I would advise. Yeah. Get involved with them. Right. That keeps, that keeps you young. Yeah, it gives you a good reason to be young and hearty. You got kids running around, right? <laughs> yeah. So, for the time being, we don't know yet about uh, about uh, the eighty third birthday headstand just yet. You'll, I guess, I guess you've been enjoying some of this. I know you've been doing. You've had to talk to a lot of people about this. It must be somewhat overwhelming. It's, it certainly is surprising. I had no idea. Like, I think this is my third. No, I think I might have lost track. I am eighty two. It's either third or fourth call. <laughs> So I'm I'm amazed that people are that interested, really, in what I. Well, can I do. think 
Yeah, I think everyone's just inspired by the fact that you did it, you know, that you set out to do it and that someone in your family thought, hey, you know, there's a record out there. Let's break it. And uh, and that you managed to do that. It's pretty pretty inspiring stuff. Well, thank you. I, it, was, it was fun. And I may reaction, try it again. Yeah. We'll see what happens. How about the reaction on Haida Gwaii? It's not a hugely populated place. People must know by now that you have this record. Oh, yeah. Walking into the, into the grocery store, I've had people come up to me already. Hey, I saw you. (laughs) They must ask you to do the headstand, or do they leave you alone? (laughs) No, they just they just say I saw you, or I saw it on on Facebook, or I saw it someplace else, and rather surprising. Well, Bruce Ives, it's a great story. Uh, Congratulations on the Guinness World Record, and yeah, we look forward to seeing if you'll do one again. But if you don't, I think you've already proved the point. I think. I think. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) We'll see what happens. A lot of texts tonight uh, from you about food waste. Don't forget to keep them coming in. Anything you hear on the show, one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. You're always welcome to be part of this conversation. There's not just uh, myself and guests, but you too. You're an important part of all this, so keep it coming. Steve uh, says, "When I worked part time at Rogers Arena after a hockey game, I witnessed two employees throwing out." A three-foot stack of large Domino's pizza. Pizza in the garbage and the box was broken down flat for recycling. What a waste. Yeah, that really is, you know, I, 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 the food waste thing has been a, really come to the forefront, I think, with the amount we're paying for it now. I mean, I think we always knew. But wow, when something gets really expensive, everyone starts to realize just how valuable and how much waste there is. Uh, Johnny in Winnipeg says the major supermarkets in Canada throw out and write off a pallet's worth of food products every week. The average pallets are four feet by four feet and six feet. This includes dairy, yogurt and cheese. The food also thrown as eggs, meat, fruit, vegetables, cereal, bakery goods. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of food waste out there. And, you know, we know we're much better at it now than we used to be, right? You get the impression we're much more cognizant of how much food gets wasted. A lot more of it, I think, is being donated or picked up under programs like we just talked about with that app, um, amongst others. There are many apps out there that allow you to buy food before it expires, before it's best, it's sell-by date. We're getting better at it, but really these days, there's no excuse to waste, right? There's no excuse to waste. Um, And it's nice to see that people are cognizant of it. In the last half hour, again, we talked about those new apps that allow you to get discounts on food about to hit their sell-by date. Of course, there are always those who choose instead to turn to the so-called five-finger discount. Theft from grocery stores is by no means a new problem. We've been asking you about it tonight. Is it ever justified, ever, under any circumstances? Uh, The rise in food costs is certainly making it more lucrative for gangs of thieves, more damaging for store owners. Here's one owner in Winnipeg describing the kind of shoplifting he'd seen that day. Oh, my God. Ridiculous. I mean, we're at uh, 1230. We've been open for four and a half hours, and we've already had two at this location. And I believe our other Portage Avenue store has had, I think, four or five. That's almost like one an hour. How many blocks of cheese do you need to eat? It's, it's multiples. It's like four or five of this, four or five of that. It's getting to be very stupid. We had a couple that came in literally maybe half an hour ago. They stole. We took it from them, and they still asked if they can continue shopping. Like, really? Like, Really? Well, according to some industry data, an average-sized food retail store in this country can have between two to $5,000 worth of groceries stolen per week. With the relatively narrow profit margins in that business, especially on the food, 
the that matters is big. And to cover losses, of course, grocers need to raise prices. So in the end, we all end up paying. But at least some Canadians, and we found this out over the weekend, I've been talking about this throughout the show, see a different kind of theft going on here. Big grocery chains making big money while many people struggle to pay the bills and fill the fridge. They say, you know, shoplifting is one kind of theft, but that's another kind of theft. Um, A recent photo kind of encapsulated it. This came out of Toronto. I don't know if you saw this online. It was a pack of five skinless, boneless, organic chicken breasts, I think, selling for 37 bucks. $26.87 a kilo. It caused a furor online about the price of groceries. Now, it was, you know, you could have found that price anywhere. Uh, Loblaw happened to get singled out for this one in particular. And there was probably cheaper chicken breast nearby, but still, it was just representative of I always talk about the $8.99 cauliflower as being my kind of like, wow, that's a lot of money. (laughs) That's a lot of money for a kind of slightly browning little cauliflower. You know, I saw one a few weeks ago. Um, But some people out there say, well, you know, in that case, theft is justified. You know, theft is justified against grocery stores that they're making these huge profits and you can't afford to buy food for your family. Now, I think 99.9% of the time, that's not really what's going on when it comes to stealing food. But we'll let my next guest talk about it because he knows. Um, he says grocers are facing a crisis of confidence and will need to, you know, navigate the coming months with caution. People are mad. And joining me now is Sylvain Charlebois, uh, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy and the Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Thanks for your time, Sylvain. Welcome back. My pleasure. So this has been a bit of a weird 2023 because it feels like, uh, you know, it used to be the big banks. Like, we, you know, popular culture always has a few corporations it doesn't like. And 2023 yeah. seems to be like the year of the bad grocer. And it all started with those $37 chicken breasts that we saw on social media. Yeah. Well, we saw it. We saw it coming, uh, and as you know, Ben, I've been out there saying, you know, there's little or no evidence of greedflation in food retail. It doesn't mean that there's no greed elsewhere, but in retail, we don't see it. And, and frankly, when you see numbers, when you look at numbers, grocers are making more money selling T-shirts and cosmetics, not food. So if you have a problem with grocers making more money selling drugs, that's one thing, but not with food. So, and, and frankly, margins have been pretty much anywhere between 2 to 5% over the last seven years or so. But people will believe what they want to believe. And over time, we've seen an increasing number of Canadians believing that the scapegoat should be grocers. Uh, and they are responsible for higher food prices, even if Canada actually has one of the lowest food inflation rates within the G7. Only Japan has a lower food inflation rate. So it's it really points to how people are angry about the whole situation. Yeah, I guess people are angry about inflation, period. And where you notice it is the one of those things you do the most often, which is buy groceries. So all of a sudden, yep. when you go to the to the checkout counter and you you assume you're going to pay a certain amount and it comes back, it's eight, nine dollars more. What's your reaction, right? You sort of feel like you've been that you're you're paying more for, for the no, same. Don't forget, for uh, don't forget, man. I mean, over the last 13 months steady, we've seen the food inflation rate exceed the general inflation rate. So as our lives became more expensive at the grocery store got worse yeah so, and I think so that, that's why people are still sticker shocked and and the 37 dollar chicken breast really again became that lightning rod against the establishment and and that would be grocers but the only grocer out there 
who's visible, who people know is Galen Weston. So everyone is just pointing fingers at that one company right now. You said, though, in the past, and you wrote an op-ed about this in the Globe and Mail, that uh, that the big grocers have made some PR mistakes themselves, like when they were called up oh, for yeah. the committee, committee, you know, it wasn't the CEOs that showed up, it was their financial people. They should really be doing a better job at, 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 at some Empathizing. Point. Yeah. Empathizing. Yeah. And, and that's what's missing right now. And so do they deserve the criticism? A little. You know, a little. I, I actually think that they do deserve it. And, and of course, on Friday, we learned that uh, the Minister of Agriculture will be implementing a code of conduct to right. kind of control the oligopoly that we have. And and frankly, I actually think that grocers need that because they showed a lot of arrogance over the years against processors, against independent grocers. And I do believe that the code of conduct, if it works, it is going to help competition in Canada and eventually it will help consumers. How will it work? So essentially, right now, there's a lot of supply chain bullying. The food industry is likely the only industry in the world where you have to pay your customer first. So if you're selling, I don't know, you're selling juices to Loblaw, you have to pay them $500,000 to be listed and buy shelf space and marketing fees and administrative fees. You have to pay for all that before you sell one bottle. Wow. I didn't so a grocery store is like a showroom. I didn't really I didn't realize that. It's real estate. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When you walk into the grocery store, everything's real estate. Everything's bought and sold and and that's how it works. How that that's how the grocery business works. And when you have just a few players out there, they can squeeze processors. And when they squeeze processors, well, processors will actually give good deals. What happens to independence? Independence can't get those same deals. And independence be, become less competitive and they disappear. And so in processing, it's the same thing, more consolidation, because who's going to, who can afford half a million dollars worth of fees to support one SKU? Pepsi, Conagra, uh, Unilever, Procter & Gamble. Those are the only companies who can afford. And that's why there's been more consolidation upstream as well. So that has to stop. If we want more competition upstream, if we want more competition retail in small town Canada, where, where, maybe one or two grocery stores closed in the last 10 years. Well, we need to defend them a little bit. And 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 I think the best me- mechanism is the code of conduct, which is exactly what happened in the UK. Right. Who enforces it? Is it is it government that enforces it? Do you have a regulatory body that, that, that enforces it if there are problems? Well, so the announcement of the code was the good news. The not so good news is how it's going to look like. It's not right. mandatory. It's government coordinated, but industry led. Ah, okay. So between you and of, I, it's a bit of a half a, measure. Yeah, that's going to be a hard sell to consumers, and that's going to be a hard sell to Canadians. And and I was a little bit disappointed by that. I I I honestly think they should have gone further. But Canada is a complicated country. You needed all ten provinces to ad- endorse this model, and Ontario was very much against a mandatory model, and that's sixty million people. So it was very tough, but. The two provinces who really wanted a mentory model was both BC and Quebec, but they didn't right. get it there. At least, at least we got somewhere, which is a code. And to me, Ben, to be honest, given the fact that I've been following this file for like a decade, it's a miracle. Sylvain Charlebois is with us. He is director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. We're talking about the high cost of food, of food inflation. Of course, we're going to get some new numbers for December tomorrow, so we'll find out more about that then. But uh, there's been a bit of a backlash in 2023 already against 
big grocery chains. And Sylvain, one of the interesting things, you wrote an article about about the cost of theft. And I think we can uh, maybe talk about what what that entails. I mean, are we seeing a rise in shoplifting and what is it costing the rest of us? Well, yeah. So uh, we estimate, and this is just an estimation. We actually estimate that the average grocery store will lose anywhere between two to five thousand dollars worth of food due to theft every single week. So that's that's a lot of money. And uh, and so my message, uh, knowing that it is a problem out there, and I'm not talking about people who come in. And, and and they're desperate, uh, they're hungry, and they're stealing one sandwich or one banana. Those are not those are not people I'm talking about. I mean, seriously, it's unfortunate to see these things happen. But if I actually see someone steal a banana in a store, I'm not going to stop them. Right. I'm not going to stop them. But we're talking about organized crime here, with or without employees. Uh, we saw two cases, and it's describing the in the in the in the article two mm-hmm. major cases where. Thousands and thousands of dollars of, of food was involved, and and clearly when you when you steal four to five thousand dollars worth of food, you're looking for another market. It's not for you. It's for for clandestine restaurants, for example, and and we've seen that over the years, and 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 that's that's a huge problem right now. And so basically, what I was saying is that well, if we don't control that, everyone's going to pay for that. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean. There must be food has become valuable. Rest, I mean, there must be a market, a, a black market out there for food, right? There would have to be. No, absolutely. And uh, so, so I'm I'm concerned about that. Uh, what I what I didn't expect. Yes, <laughs> this is the unexpected part of this was that was somehow that. Well, I am, saw I, this I, as like a Robin Hood thing, right? It was a Robin. Well, I, Hood I posted thing. I posted my op on on the web, and and I started to see a a a a, a significant number of people. Admitting that they were stealing and encouraging people to steal uh, at the grocery store, and I basically responded and say, "Listen, this is this is not right. Rule of law is a big deal in Canada, so we can't if we if we can encourage people to steal, we're going to hurt ourselves. Uh, at the end of the day, we're going to hurt us. We're going to hurt ourselves." And and that's when things got out of control. And I never expected. Uh, and we're talking about Twitter here. We're not talking yes. about society. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Twitter just became vicious. Uh, I receive hundreds and hundreds of personal attacks, emails, uh, direct messages, everything. Yeah, right. everything. Is this? I mean, when you looked at it, I mean, clearly part of the messaging here was from people who want to. <laughs> support this is that you know these big grocery chains are making record profits and so on is it just anger overall i mean what were you seeing in the middle there because it you're right i mean when is it okay to break the law under any circumstances you know if you think cars are too expensive you don't steal cars if you think you know if you think movie tickets are too too much you don't sneak in i mean there's there's you're right i mean it's the rule of law but there seems to be a lot of anger out there about grocery stores and the profits well, the anger was towards grocers and, and Galen Weston, who most people know. But as soon as there was an association made on, on social media about me and the Weston Foundation, and I have no relationship anymore, I got a grant five or six years ago uh, to pay for a postdoc. So I never received any money myself. It was given to Dal, and Dal gave it to a postdoc. We did some research, which had nothing to do with food retail, by the way. Nothing. Yeah, this is normal, though, in, in, in academia, is it not? Is it not? Of course it is. Uh, yeah. I actually think that Western Foundation has given 
uh, over 280 postdoc uh, grants uh, over the last 10 years. I'm not alone. I've seen on on I've seen in media on in media people I know who were funded by by the Western Foundation uh, critiquing you know grocers and things like that. So I'm not alone out there. I'm not going to no. disclose who they are. I just know who they are. But as soon as the association was made between me and Mr. Weston and Loblaw, I was done. That's it. Done. There was there was no. So I couldn't defend myself. You've covered this 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 space for such a long time. Twenty five years. There, there's something. There's something going on, isn't there? I mean, there's if, something. If you go back, I mean, yeah. I've been. If there's one person who's been critical of grocers over the years, it's me. Right. I mean, the bread car. I have an op-ed about the bread cartel in the Globe and Mail in February 2018. I mean, I've been right. very critical of the grocery business, and so for people to attack an academic like that and accuse that academic of of com- of being in conflict is um, is frankly yeah. unjustified. But honestly, I I do. I think you're right. I mean, I think it points to. The level of anger out there towards one company or one person, and it just it, it just affected other other components of the system, including myself. It does it mean we could because we have to have a rational conversation about this, right? I mean, of course, at some, at some point, food inflation will begin to drop, and we'll see whether grocery stores keep their prices high. But as you said earlier, as far as you can tell, um, they're being sort of. I mean, grocery chains are kind of because they're on the front lines of this are being are paying the piper for everybody for the whole system being um, inefficient, so to speak, and with prices being high. That's right, exactly. So, I mean, food is a necessity of life, and but some of the comments I saw on Twitter were pretty, pretty concerning. Like, for example, I saw many times food should be free. Yeah, like, well, I mean, maybe, maybe so this, caviar yeah. for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe this is a time. I mean, I think a lot of people have been with the strain on food banks, the strain on on school meals. I think a lot of people are looking at the high price of food and thinking, "Wow, that has a real ripple effect on a lot of." hitting a lot of people who can't afford the hit. So what do we do about it? We could have a rational conversation, but I don't think stealing is the answer, but there you go. No, and even worse, I mean, bragging about the fact that you're stealing openly, publicly, and encourage your uh, co-citizens mm-hmm. to do the same is really the wrong way to do it. I actually repeated it mm-hmm. this weekend. I sent out two other tweets saying, I'm doubling down on this. This is not right. You shouldn't be doing this. And I was, again, attacked and attacked and attacked. So, but I, I mean, one would one would hope, though, that in 2023, after this food inflation is, continues, that we can have a rational conversation about whether this system works or not and why, when we see price shocks like this, it hits hard. It hits hard for so many. I mean, that's a rational conversation to have without advocating shoplifting. Well, I mean, I've, I've been, honestly been over the last uh, four days. I've been invited to by four or five podcasts mm-hmm. delivering interviews of well over an hour, and I really enjoyed those conversations. Like this one, for example, you had the time to explain, yeah. you know. And people invite me to kind of bash me. It's mm-hmm. it's funny because they just hate me. At the beginning of the conversation, they hate me. Then after I've given an opportunity to explain how things work and my point of view about what's going on, all of a sudden, they they understand. And yeah. so you're absolutely right. I think it's important to relax and, and try to think about you know our food systems and where we're going here. Sylvain Chalabois, as always, thank you for your time. My pleasure. 
We've been asking you tonight about theft because there was a debate that erupted over the weekend surrounding high the high cost of groceries and grocery store profits or grocery chain profits at least and some out there uh, subscribing to a view that you know that maybe stealing isn't the wrong sort of a Robin Hood theory right of course thou shall not steal I think kind of ends there but it's an interesting debate it shows how people are frustrated by a lot of things when it comes to inflation, but specifically the cost of food. It's gotten very expensive, as we well know. Uh, Kat and Gimli says there is never an excuse for shoplifting. That is sloppy, amoral, thinking the world owes you nothing. Uh, she finishes by saying more people should spend their time developing practical skills instead of instead of whining. Uh, yeah, yes. But again, it's this debate. I think it says less about how people feel about stealing and more about how people are feeling overall about inflation. People are frustrated these days. A lot of people aren't used to spending, finding themselves having to save and pinch pennies. I mean, a lot of us, you know, a lot of people are these days, clearly. But it is, um, and it's been going on for more than a year now. So, you know, food prices have been steadily increasing. I think people are frustrated by it and looking for someone to blame. Now, if you've been anywhere, you know that food prices here are actually, food inflation in Canada actually isn't higher than other places. It's about the same. It's actually lower than a lot of places. Only Japan is lower in the G7. But, you know, everyone is seeing these prices jump. We're going to find out what the inflation numbers were in December tomorrow. But you know food inflation has been high, outpacing the overall inflation rate for months on end. Now it came in at more than 11% last month compared with November 2021. And those are rates we haven't seen in decades. We know that. It's also led to some creative solutions. There are entrepreneurs out there looking for ways to help consumers, to pair consumers with cheaper food, or at least to try to get consumers to give it a try. One of them is called Flash Food. It allows grocery chains to post and sell food closer to its sell-by date at discounts. Introducing Flash Food. Get up to 50% off fresh items nearing their best buy dates. It's as easy as one, two, three. Browse your local grocery store to find deals on meats, dairy, produce, and bakery items, pay for them in the app, and pick up your order in-store with the help of customer service. Eat more while spending less and help crush food waste with the free Flash Food app. Yeah, Flash Food. There's other, there are others out there, Food Hero, Too Good to Go. I downloaded them all over the weekend to have a look at the, how, they, uh, how they work. They're all pretty simple, as the ad explains. You tell the app where you live or let it figure it out itself at your, you know, let your phone help your phone, let your phone help the app and it flashes up deals near you. Now, there weren't many in my neck of the woods, save for flash food. So congratulations to them. You know, a fruit box for $5, a deal on bread. Further afield in Vancouver, there were more yogurt for $2.99, cottage cheese for $1.74. Now, again, you know, this is a, this is a way, of get, I mean, it started off as a way of a really avoiding food waste, but with the high cost of food, it's also become a way to bargain hunt as well. Joining me now is Kate Ledbeater. She's the chief marketing officer at Flash Food. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. Tell me a bit about the inspiration for this uh, for for this particular app because it seems like such a good idea, but you know, it's um, someone needed to do it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that person was our founder, Josh Dominguez. So um, Josh actually had a sister who worked in catering and um, who who called him one night and she was upset at having to have thrown out more than $4,000 worth of perfectly good food at an event. And um, Josh was sort of shocked to hear this and, and really started to dig in on the topic of food waste and do research and talk to various folks throughout the supply chain. He was actually living above a grocery store at the time um, and came to realize that there was this real opportunity to um, to take the food waste that was happen, happening in grocery stores to solve that operational problem and actually get that food into the hands of consumers uh, while it is still good um, so that it can be consumed and yeah, enjoyed. I mean, we know... We know that food waste is a huge issue, right? I mean, my memories of this was always going to the grocery store and they used to have like a, you know, like a a little stack of stuff that was hitting itself sell by date and sometimes you'd look through it. How does it work in your case? Do you pair up with particular stores or how does how does it function for for flash food in particular? Yeah, well, Flash Food is actually now in over 1,500 stores across Canada and the U.S., over 700 stores in Canada. And so we're in a number of the of the grocery stores you might find near you, Loblaws, No Frills, Superstore, Your Independent Grocer, Wholesale Club, and Zares. And, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, folks can just download the app for free from the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store and browse deals at grocery stores near them. Um, and can simply pay for those uh, items in the app and then conveniently, you know, pick up at, at the front of most stores near the kind of customer service desk. So really uh, an innovation on the clearance rack you mentioned that has existed, you know, for many moons in grocery stores yeah. and has really not helped to solve the problem of food waste. This really allows people to plan their shops, you know, in from the convenience of home or work to see what's available, what fits their dietary needs, um, and to really choose the stores that they're going to go pick up uh, from based on what appeals to them. So what are some, I mean, I was reading about this. I understand there have been some challenges in terms of uh, consistency across locations. Some areas have more stores than others and just trying to get, I mean, I, I realize probably on the retailer side, this is probably still somewhat labor intensive, right? So they need to be able to get this stuff together and let you know about it. Uh, how is that? What have the challenges been so far? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, you know, in in grocery, um, it, it's an it's a business where it's very busy, and, and folks have a lot to do in store. Uh, but we actually find that um, store associates are really eager to work with the program because they know how well loved it is by consumers. Um, and consumers will find, you know, when you download the Flash Food app, it's extremely easy to browse and, and select items. And similarly, we have an app that allows grocers uh, to really, within one or two clicks, post items to the app and make that food available. So more than half a million products are made available on Flash Food every week across over 1,500 locations, and that continues to grow. Um, so certainly as there is turnover in stores, you know, keeping folks trained and engaged is always something that we're looking to do. But um, just really, you know, happy to see all of the engagement that we have from the store associates who work on this program and how grateful the shoppers are for all of that hard work. Yeah, because as you mentioned, we were talking about the, you know, sort of the Best Buy tray that used to exist. It was never really put there to appeal to the customer. And it feels like when you look through these, the different apps, yours and others, I should be fair to everyone else. But when you look through yours and others, it is presented in a a much more pleasing way than that old rack hidden behind something was in your average bricks and mortar store. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And really, I think it just allows busy families to plan. And, you know, I mentioned dietary restrictions, but more than 20% of of folks who shop on flash food are trying to manage, you know, some dietary preferences in the household or um, have certain health conditions that they're trying to eat more fruits and vegetables or or get access to different healthy foods they might not otherwise be able to fit into the budget. So being able to browse different stores near them to really search for the items that are of interest and buy those from the convenience of their phone, knowing that they can then uh, pick up at, at the store on their own schedule, you know, really makes it much more useful and, and effective rather than, you know, poking into the store and sort of hoping there might be something on the clearance rack that, that suits your needs. How do you, one of the issues always, of course, is even, even on that rack, on the clearance rack, the uh, condition of things always varied pretty dramatically. How do you, I know you're just the middle person, but how do you try to guarantee quality because you're part of this you're part of this process now Absolutely. And, you know, the the grocery partners that work in store, those store associates are really experts in food, right? And so they are very much, you know, schooled and experienced at knowing um, when something has still a window where it can be, you know, enjoyed and and when it really has reached that point that it needs to come off the shelf. And really, that's what we try to avoid and getting things, um, you know, while they are still delicious um, onto the app, you know, with several days, in some cases, more time uh, left to go allows consumers to to pick up that item, to bring it home and to cook it same day or to freeze it or to process it, you know, making jams and compotes and bread puddings and you name it. Our customers are very creative when it comes to, to using the items they find on the app. Yeah, there was a, uh, an article out uh, recently about someone, uh, you know, with seven heads of cabbage, right? I mean, yeah, I suppose you always... Yes. Um, how, how do you get... How do you, I mean, there, there always is a stigma around Best Buy dates, you know? I mean, for years, I know that in the in the industry, people have been, you know, they've been telling us, listen, these are, you know, some are some are definitely consumed before dates, but a lot of them aren't. So th- there is, there's always sort of a misunderstanding around sell-by dates. How do you, how do you get past that? Well, I think it's something that we, you know, societally need to kind of get past in general, because you mentioned, you know, some foods having best buy dates, and oftentimes they're really just a recommendation, right? And it's really a ballpark um, in in terms of what's provided. And you see in some countries like the UK, you know, making progress at looking at changing how those dates are used or eliminating them altogether and really saying to consumers, you know, using your, use your best judgment, you know, take a look at the food, smell the food. And oftentimes you really can tell uh, when the food is past its best date. But in terms of what's available on flash food, you're you're never really getting into those situations because the food very much is, um, you know, delicious food with um, still a window in which it can be consumed and uh, and enjoyed very much the same way as, you know, you would do a grocery shop. And then in my household, we call it fridge management. But, you know, you take a look at the fridge and you sort of see, okay, what's what am I using in what order here in order to make sure that um, that everything is is consumed and enjoyed. Kate Ledbeater is with us this half hour. She's Chief Marketing Officer of Flash Food, an app, an app that allows you to take advantage of uh, discounts on groceries uh, for, by grocery stores. The grocery stores put them up there. This is food that is often heading towards its sell-by date. It's not there yet, but they, it's their interest to sell it instead of throwing it away. And uh, they make it available on these apps that are now available that you can go and download and then use. And it's sort of quite, it's quite simple. It sort of figures out where you tell it where, tell it where you are. And it looks for stores 
near you. Some areas there are a lot. Some areas like where I am in Victoria, there are fewer. I guess, Kate, that's sort of the problem right now is, is just I was reading that even for your organization, you'd like to see more pickup from grocery stores because the more grocery stores are in there, the more customers, the more stuff moves, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we really are seeing that that growth, especially with our expansion in the U.S., where we now have more than a dozen partners across over more than 1,500 stores. So, um, you know, definitely seeing some great um, some great traction and, and over 2.5 million people that have uh, have downloaded Flash Food to date. So no shortage of shopper interest, that's for sure. Better in the U.S. than here for now or any reasons why that might be? Well, you know what? We have a, a great partnership with Loblaws in terms of being in all of their banners, um, which really gets us into a, a, nearly a quarter of all grocery stores across Canada. And so we do have coast-to-coast coverage in, in 10 provinces and two territories. And, and certainly we would like to, you know, make as much product available as possible to our customers. But, um, you know, really do have great coverage in Canada overall. This would be a question that anybody would be thinking, but how do you make money from this? How does how does Flash Food make, make a profit from this? Yeah. So really, you know, we get paid when our and our grocery partners get paid. And so we take a small proportion right. of, of the funds from the sale, most of which is remitted back to our grocery partner. And, and that's really how it works. When you look at how your customer profile has changed, I mean, I know when I first, a lot of the apps such as yours still use the food waste as part of the as part of the campaign. Try to, one of the reasons why you think people should be doing this. Have you seen the customer profile change at all in the last little while because food prices shot up so quickly? You know what? Interesting that you'd mentioned the customer profile. I think that we definitely have seen, you know, that flash food is used by really a wide variety of people from students to retirees on a fixed income, uh, but really most often women and women who are in households who have, you know, dependents or are caring for elders or have multiple mouths to feed, you know, three or more people in the household is, you know, more than half of flash food users, Um and really? those users, yeah. you know, the ones who are regular shoppers save over $400 a year on average. And we even have some families who saved over 10000 um, which is really, you know, some really interesting stories to hear about how passionate they are in terms of, uh, of finding deals. But, yeah, we do find that really there's a wide variety of folks who, who use the app. And when you look at how it's used, too, do you feel like it does? I mean, not that there should be, but there, there's always a stigma, right? When people buy stuff that's either on sale or it's about, like, you go to the grocery store, you see all the things with their big, bright, yellow, st- orange stickers saying, you know, need to sell, buy. And people sometimes shy away from it because of it, because of the, the stigma around it. It feels like with this, you don't have to do that. You, you, you order it, you show up at the store, it's there for you, right? Well, and not only that, but there's really a lot of pride in an amazing deal. And you'll see people on social media, you know, on Instagram, on TikTok and elsewhere, sharing the amazing deals they've been able to find on Flash Food. And it really is a source of pride for people who are, um, you know, like you mentioned, the seven heads of cabbage or, you know, we, we have a shopper who was telling us about how, you know, they were able to get steaks on a birthday or uh, my mom who was able to get a, a leg of lamb for a special occasion and, you know, produce for smoothies or, or a mango for your kids when that's not typically a fruit that you would buy because of its cost. So I, I think it really a lot of pride comes to the table as well. Yeah, I guess if you add it all up with couponing and so on, there are a lot of different options out there that apps and so on allow you to sort of look for new ways to save on your grocery bills. And this is one of them. 
Yeah, you know, uh, one of the words I love to use to describe our shoppers is inventive. You know, people are creative and they're passionate about feeding their families great food. And we are just one tool in their arsenal of creative problem solving. Well, Caitlin Beter, thank you so much for uh, shining some light on what it is uh, uh, Flash Food does and how it works. It was my pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me.